0: Welcome to Coming From Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. When we think of our judicial system, we often are drawn to TV court dramas like To Kill a Mockingbird, where defendants, prosecutors, judges, and juries try to arrive at the truth but 97% of all criminal cases are decided with a plea bargain and never go to trial. Compared to our Canadian neighbors, we arrest our citizens at five times their rate and incarcerate at six times their rate. Do our courts really provide justice, or are they just an effective system to ensure a continuation of corporate power? Let's discuss this situation with attorney Dan Cannon. Well, warm greetings uh greg and i are excited to have uh, dan cannon on our podcast today welcome dan thanks a lot for having me and i i came across you almost exactly a month ago you were on the majority report and you talked about your your new book pleading out i immediately went out and got a copy of it and uh sent it sent it to told greg pick up a copy we've got to have this guy on uh, i'm we give you a little bit of background about you. Uh, you're an attorney and you teach uh, in law school in Louisville, and you are speaker, writer, and have been really the latest expert on the issue of plea bargaining in our judicial system. And that's your present book, although that's not your all of your interest. Can I get that about right.
1: Yeah, I think so. I also I see the the bass in the background there. Uh now I I I was uh, I was a professional musician before all this too. So that's I'm a recovering professional musician is what I like to tell people. So
0: Oh my gosh. My um, wife my wife is a rock drummer. She picked oh. up she picked up drumming and she's now in a band and plays and uh I'm an amateur bassist uh but I've been uh, trying to get better i actually for the first time in my life i'm taking lessons to actually learn how to do it right so well, you got a
1: whole family rhythm section there that's I know. great yeah <laughs> good
0: good so dan tell me about your tell me about your book pleading out how plea bargaining creates a permanent criminal class tell tell us about this
1: yeah sure so so it's a book that is essentially a um a 300 page indictment of the criminal justice system, basically uh, through the lens of plea bargaining. Um, and so what it is is that it looks at uh, the whole ball of wax, prosecution and mass incarceration and policing um, and everything that's wrong with the system. Um, and, and and uses plea bargaining to talk about all those things that are going wrong um, and to sort of dissect the mechanism that is, uh, I argue is 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 allowing us to have this unprecedented number of convictions and unprecedented number of people locked up and 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 so on. Um, and you know, my my background as a litigator, I've done a lot of criminal appeals and a lot of what we call post conviction work. So I, I mean, i I'm, I'm working with incarcerated people a lot. And through the years of talking to these folks, um, I sort of got the sense that a lot of them didn't know exactly what happened to them. I mean, they might know why they're locked up, but they don't know procedurally what happened. And, you know, the overwhelming sense that all of them were sort of pressed into taking the best offer that they could get, like almost everybody that I've ever worked with is there as a result of a plea bargain. Um, So I wanted to get to, to dig into that a little bit and to figure out what makes the United States so different in the way that we do plea bargaining versus you know the whole rest of the world. If you look at, I think most of your listeners will know that our outcomes in the United States, our criminal justice outcomes are terrible, like worse than any place else in the world. But we also do plea bargaining differently than any place else in the world. Like 97% of our criminal cases are end in a plea bargain and the most anybody else in the entire world tops out at is about 80%. Um, and those are extremes. And so I wanted to see if there was any connection between the terrible criminal justice system outcomes that we have in the United States and the way that we do plea bargaining. And and I think that the answer is, is almost certainly yes.
0: You know, in my introduction, Dan, I, I always do a short little introduction, and I mentioned a couple of things. Uh, one, that we have this belief that we have this judicial system that works because we have a, a jury of our peers, we have trials, we try to get to the truth as best we can. But we also arrest five times the number of people that Canada does. Right. And we incarcerate six times the number and we don't have trials as you mentioned in your book, we don't have a jury of our peers. Who who are the jurors that show up to try uh, right to try cases
1: yeah no no the the whole idea of a jury of our peers of a jury of of a defendant's peers is i mean i think for the most part a lie right something that is a mythology that has been thrust on us that we hear about you know even as lawyers we a lot of us tend to think that that is true that that is the way that justice is being conducted um, the criminal lawyers know better, right? Um, but I think that, that even once you're in the system as a criminal lawyer, it's easy to become sort of, you know, just like sort of fall into the pattern of doing things the way that we've always done them for the last 200 years or so, and being, um, you know, uh, undercritical about how the system really operates. If you look at, at where we started with plea bargaining, go all the way back to the 19th century you know, and, and look at the rise of plea bargaining towards the end of the 1800s, you know, by the turn of the 19th century, at least in new, uh, sorry, the turn of the 20th century, at least in New England, you've got more than 90% of all criminal cases already ending in plea bargains. And so, so think about that. And then think about, you know, that that's that's you're talking about a situation in which the the jury trial, as we think about it, has ar- had already been chased into relative extinction. And it's even worse now. So think about where we were demographically with juries back then. You know, they didn't even allow women to sit on juries in Massachusetts until 1950. Oh, my God. So. So, yeah. So, I mean, this idea and, and of course, you know, for people of color, you never had you never had a, a, a decision from the United States Supreme Court that said that prosecutors couldn't um, uh, exclude black people from juries just because they were black, that decision didn't happen until 1986. So, you know, this idea that we've ever had a real jury system like, uh, that, that, that was a citizen jury of a defendant's peers is, is a falsehood, it's never happened.
0: When I first uh, heard, heard you on majority report, I, I talked to Greg and I said, you know, I really would like to get Dan on because uh, the book talks about two things. One is the the history, uh, the history of how we got here, and then the dysfunction of where we are presently and and Greg is um I I don't know if I would is, is somewhat of an expert on on early labor law and uh, Marxist party and the history of the Communist Party of the United States and so forth. And and I, I I called him and I said, you know, the, Dan is talking about the history of this coming from the need to control and destroy unions. Yes. And and I said I don't I don't know if this is right or wrong, but it's an, I'd never heard this thesis before. And and just like you, subsequently I went back and actually did research. And you're absolutely right. In 1830, we had an influx of. A lot of people coming into the country, immigrants coming to the cities, and they were um, organizing, if you will, and trying to protect their labor. And the system responded by figuring out a way to destroy this movement or control this movement. Same like same as we did with the the you know the Red Scare. Same we did with civil rights movement. Same we did the war on drugs. Periodically, it raises its Ugly head and says we gotta we have to control this. I, I, am I right on that, or, I, or did I describe that relatively?
1: Absolutely, yeah. And 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 so during that period of time, so we we can look at you know the history of plea bargaining and and you know for someone to ha- even take a guilty plea at that you know to a serious offense before eighteen thirty was practically unheard of, right let alone to bargain with the prosecutor over what the charges ought to be or what the sentence ought to be. So before 1830, unheard of, in 1830, you see this this gradual uptick of guilty pleas in Massachusetts, which is where we think this all began. Um, And then by 1850, it's 50% of all criminal cases. And as I already mentioned, by the, the 1880s, we're up to 88%, almost 90% of cases that end in a plea bargain. If you look at what was happening on the ground at that time in New England, just post-industrial revolution, right? And you've got um, this in- increase in class consciousness. You've got this influx of uh, uh, immigrant and migrant workers coming to work at the mills and the textile industries. And you've got um, this, the, the rise of labor unions in a big way right? So I think when people think about labor history, they probably think about the early 20th century. And that's certainly, you know, like the scope of everything that I knew before I got into researching for the book. But there was a lot going on in the early 19th century. And this is really where labor starts getting it, its land legs. The first Federation of Labor Unions is founded, I think, uh, in, in 1824. I mean, I'm getting my dates mixed up. Um, but right around the same time in New York, you've got the first Federation of Labor Unions. You know, the Pawtucket mill strike there in New England was the first big textile union strike. And and so this is making the ruling classes very nervous. And, you know, there is really no such thing as state-sanctioned labor at that time. And so you see the courts and other institutions really working very hard to overtly break the back of organized labor. Like, that's what they were doing. And for a long time, the courts were prosecuting um groups of workers for organizing so if they get together and they strike or they just get together and say look we want higher wages then they get prosecuted under conspiracy statutes you know these whole groups of workers well when you get uh, a working class that becomes as big as quickly as it did in Massachusetts that that strategy is not going to work for very long right because they just the ruling class is just grossly outnumbered and you've got a situation in which working class white men for the first time because of universal suffrage are sitting on juries. And so these prosecutions are just not politically possible anymore if the folks in charge wanna stay in charge. And so they come up with new strategies. In the 1840s, you know, at the same time that you see this rise of labor unions, you see an uptick in, in plea bargain cases, right? In the 1840s, the courts finally give up and say, you know, we can't continue to prosecute you know, workers just for organizing. Like, we can't do that. We're going to have to figure out other ways to do this. And so what they start doing is prosecuting, instead of prosecuting groups of workers, they're prosecuting each of them one at a time, right, en masse for things like these ridiculously broad statutes, like vagrancy statutes, like drunken disorder, like, like, like anything, anything they can snag them for. They're prosecuting them. And then cutting deals with them so they don't have to go in front of a jury, right. Um, and at the same time, the like, power is being taken away from juries, from citizen juries by the Massachusetts legislature and by legislatures all over the country subsequently. So yeah, you see all these things happening at the same time power gets taken away from juries at the same time that working class white men are able to sit on juries for the first time. And you see the rise of labor and you see this, you know, explosion in the working class population. um, And you see the rise of the plea bargain. Now, you can chalk all that up to coincidence. But but my point in the book is that I don't think it's coincidental.
0: So, Greg, what's your thought about this? I know you you would if we were talking about 1890, 1920s, 1940s, all this would be I mean, you've written about this. Uh, were you aware of Were you aware of this tech, These techniques being used this early in the 1830s?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, that's 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 what ruling classes do. I don't think it's any any mystery. That's exactly what ruling classes do: is they uh, use the instruments that are available and they shape them in a way that controls people. I think what Dan has done so well is he's he's shown how uh, the moment, the time, the conditions uh, kind of dictated that. It kind of established how that proceeded,
0: right? I I remember Dan the book uh, "Slavery by Another Name," uh, which was talking about uh, post Civil War and all of the. Um, you said the d- d- vagrancy, drunken, disorderly. They were used that in the South to go in and grab groups of black young black men and then have them work in the turpentine factories, or you know would 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 farm their labor out. And that's exactly what was going on here. They're they're using these nebulous um, excuses to ensnare these ensnare these workers. The the other thing I didn't know that you, I thought was so good about your book is you were talking about at that time, juries had a lot of power, as both the fact under <laughs> finding facts, and Describing the law, tell, tell, tell us about how that needed to be unraveled.
1: Yeah, so so nationwide, you know, in the early 19th century, you've got a situation where where juries are much more powerful than they are now, right? So, I mean, just about the most power you can have as a citizen right now is, is to sit on a jury, right? Sit in a jury trial. That's, you know, that's one of the ways you can be the most powerful. Um, and we've been conditioned to think that it's a drag or that, you know it's it's uh, it's something you should try to get out of at all costs. but but jury juries are very powerful even now. Back then, um, the jury, as you say, the jurors were were not just finders of fact, um but could decide what the law should be. So I'll give you an example. Um, you know, now we think of the jury as a finder of fact. And so if the trial is about whether or not a guy ran a red light, And then the jury decides, you know, the judge instructs them on the law and says, okay, it's illegal to run a red light. And now you, jury, you go and decide whether or not, you know, you you decide the fact issue of whether or not the defendant ran the red light. Well, at that time, the jury could not only say whether or not the defendant ran the red light. This is a terrible example from the 19th century, but roll with it. Um, But also whether or not it should be illegal to run a red light, right? And that kind of power was too much for the ruling classes to hand over to the working classes, right? there's There's this recognition of that. and you see it in the in the uh, scholarly literature of the time, where where these legal academics are writing, "Look, you know, juries are too stupid to do the kinds of things that we want them to do, right? juries are too stupid to do the work of courts and of course the work of courts was explicitly the work of the ruling class at that time it had very little to do with the lower classes um, So what you see is and, and you know this is again this is all stuff that I didn't know until I started researching for the book. I've been to law school, you know I've been in hundreds of jury trials uh, you know I've been doing this for a while. And I didn't know the juries had that kind of power, and it's an important part of our history that's just sort of been swept under the rug. Uh, but it was very controversial at the time, and so in the 1850s, you know, the the Massachusetts Constitutional Convention. This is a big deal, where they're arguing over whether or not they should take the power to decide issues of law away from juries. And there are uh, Massachusetts representatives that are, are talking about how this is classist. This is elitist. You know, you know, you can't just turn this over to judges to decide what the law is. But that's an aspect of American law that, that, that we take for granted. And that's, that's when it happened is they started taking that power away from juries at the same time that working class white men were allowed to sit on juries for the first time
0: and this this went fast you said in your book in 1830s there were zero plea bargains in the 1850s, two decades later there were 50% of all trials were were settled with plea bargains in 1880s 88% and now we're up to more than 97%
1: 97% and rising somehow Right. You know, so even as the number of criminal cases continues to increase, the number of criminal trials even now continues to decrease. Both the raw number and the percentage continue to decrease.
2: Who gets the three percent? I'm just curious. I was was floored by your number. I read in the book and I don't trust my memory. And then you said it again, 97 percent. Of course I believe it, but it, it's to me it's wild. It's just wild. And wh- who gets the three percent? Does that belong to the wealthy? The people that have big time lawyers or
1: so yeah, no, I think it's 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 some of it is the wealthy, right? Where you have brave prosecutors that are willing to take wealthy defendants to the mat. Okay. Um, some of it is is you know, people who insist upon their innocence, um, and those folks tend to get hammered the worst, right? One of the more chilling statistics that I've got in the book is um, that I think it's 75% of the people who have been put on death row since the 1970s, since 1976, 75% of them could have avoided the death penalty by simply taking the plea offer that the prosecutor had put on the table, right? Which is usually life without parole. But You know, serious murder, serious rape case. Prosecutor comes and says, look, you know, take this deal, take life without parole, take a life sentence, don't make me go through trial, and I won't put the death penalty on the table. And the defendant says, nope, sorry, I'm going to roll the dice and go to trial. Well, the trial penalty that I talk about all the way through the book says that the prosecutor can can the prosecutor imposes this trial penalty and sometimes that penalty is death right mm. like okay well now we're going to make this a death penalty case now i'm going to put the death penalty on the table and you know that ups the ante a little bit and you know if you're going to go to trial you're going to be in front of a death qualified jury and you know that that can be a very uh, a strong motivator but you know the, the 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 implication there though too is that even for folks that oppose the death penalty which i do um, we like to think that you reserve that penalty for the worst of the worst of the worst people, like the most heinous crimes, and that helps us sleep at night. Okay, well, we're a, con- we're a retentionist country, and we still put people to death, but it's only the worst people, and we're pretty sure that they're guilty. Well, that statistic suggests, to me anyway, that that there's a whole lot more innocent people sitting on death row than there ought to be, because you know the folks that will insist on taking their cases to the mat and not taking a plea bargain usually come in one of two categories one the criminally insane of which there are quite a few and the other is the people who are factually innocent that aren't going to admit to something that they didn't do um so i think it has really chilling implications for for the way in which we administer the death penalty in this country as if we needed anything more
0: i have a couple of attorney friends i've chatted with um after I read the book, you know, having dinner with them, and and I mentioned that I was going to have you on, and and how it was a, a book that was saying essentially the um, criminal ju- j- jury system is not not functioning. They immediately went through a soliloquy, just outlining your book to t. They they know what's going on. Yeah, but yeah. the public doesn't know what's going on. We. I, you know I've I've been called to jury duty a couple of times I people don't know that what actually happens in these courtrooms, especially now with our newspapers uh, not having the ability to really cover them and it what struck me is how they just rolled out exactly they could have written your book and yeah. and, and I'm shocked by your book and they're in the system and they're just saying hey you're in the desert, it's hot you don't take the case, you're going to screw up that Cancun vacation for that uh, prosecutor. You're screwed. And everyone knows you're screwed. I don't know. What do you say, Greg?
2: Does it mean now that from a rational uh, choice perspective, that if you're arrested, you're essentially convicted? I mean, the arrest convicts you, because you have 97% of the people plea bargaining, which means that you're kind of accepting that you're you're guilty on some level or another and the other 3% are probably irrational by doing it it's a 100% guarantee that if you're arrested you've been convicted
1: well that's right and and so this leads to all kinds of problems with prosecution and with policing especially right so of the 11 million arrests that are made almost 11 million arrests that are made in the united states every year police are pretty sure that they're never going to be called to account for the circumstances of those arrests, right? Um, They're not going to have to testify in front of a jury. They're not going to have to go back and show the math. They're not going to have to show that they crossed the T's and dotted dotted the I's and so on and so forth, because we've decided as a society that we're going to give prosecutors infinite bargaining power. They're going to have every carrot and every stick that anybody could possibly ever want to coerce um, a defendant into taking whatever deal is on the table. And so cops know this, and they behave accordingly. They know that there's not going to really be any meaningful accountability for their actions most of the time. And so they'll go, and they'll lie, and they'll make stuff up. And, and, you know, in contrast, where you look at jurisdictions where they've clamped down on plea bargaining historically throughout the, uh, in, in, throughout the United States and throughout the world, in fact, um, you know, the, 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 the sort of common misconception among lawyers is that if we cut back on the number of plea bargain cases, that the system is gonna somehow implode. It's gonna collapse on itself, like the wheels of justice are gonna stop turning, and there's gonna be no way that we can that the system can bear doing less than 97% plea bargains. Like, how could we possibly do trials and do all this uh truth seeking and fact-finding that's involved in in, in a criminal legal system? Um, And in fact, that's that's not so where you look at at historical examples like Alaska and to a lesser extent, El Paso and New Orleans and some of the the jurisdictions that have experimented with knocking down the number of plea bargain cases. The system doesn't crash, it becomes more intelligent. And and what happens is, you know, where prosecutors have to be more choosy about the cases they decide to take to the mat, if they know they're not going to get. A, um, a, you know, an automatic win every time. If they know that they're not going to be able to secure a conviction on the charges that are in front of them, they end up discarding a whole lot more of these cases. You look at Alaska. You got a situation there where, um, you know, in the 1970s, Alaskan prosecutors are rejecting somewhere around 4% of the cases that Alaskan cops are bringing to them. So cops come in with whatever it is, you know, whatever piece of crap case they've got, like, do you have any evidence for this? No, we don't have any evidence. Okay, well, we'll see what we can do with it anyway, right? Because we know we can leverage a plea bargain of some kind, um, which is what happens in most of the country now. Well, That's what was happening in Alaska in the 1970s. And all of a sudden, you get this new attorney general that comes in and says, all right, No more plea bargains. They all go through me, and I'm basically going to say no to most of them. We're going to do more trials, and we're going to be more selective about the cases we take. So that makes everybody in the system very mad for a short time, right? The police are fighting with the prosecutors, and the defense attorneys don't like it, and everybody's got more work to do. But what happens is the system doesn't crash. It adapts. And what happened in Alaska was overnight, these prosecutors went from rejecting 4% of all the cases that police brought to them to rejecting 40% so they're really having to look at what comes in see what's got good evidence and and make choices based on priorities you know do we really want to prosecute every drug crime that comes in here and take that to trial is that where our priorities are we rather be focusing on property crimes, or sex crimes, or murders or whatever right um, so, so and 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 in the end, you know, uh, over the decade that this went on in Alaska, um, just about everybody was in agreement that this is a better way of doing things. But then you get a new AG that comes in and everything changes again. Uh, we just tend back to because the courts have said prosecutors can do whatever they want in the context of these plea bargains since the 1970s um that's that's basically the 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 sort of baseline that every jurisdiction goes back to even if you have a good prosecutor in there for a while that's that's being a little bit more diligent about their case screening
0: yeah i was interested in that uh who, who the attorney general was gross was that his name was it yeah true? ab gross you know ab, ab gross a bright guy well respected and uh, he got voted out someone else came in they completely re changed the system back why weren't there voices of people saying wait a second this was working fairly well this was this was an improvement is it just because we don't know what's going on in courtrooms or yeah
1: yeah i mean i think it's because of what you you touched on before is that there are insiders and there are outsiders right and the insiders basically just want to do their jobs and move on with it right trials are hard um it's hard for prosecutors and for defense attorneys to do all this, you know, it's, it's hard on everybody. This is a very stressful work. Um, it takes long hours. Plea bargains are easier, right? You know, so it's it's easier to do wheeling and dealing in, in a conference room than it is to try a case. It's easier to, you know, like uh, move convictions through the system at an unbelievable rate than it is even to establish a screening system that says, no, this case is crap and this case is good, that sort of thing. And so since you have a system in the United States that for a very long time has excluded the broader community from matters of criminal justice almost entirely, which is what we have if you think about it. You know, you said you've been called a jury duty. I, I mean, I, I've i never sat on a jury. Nobody's ever going to pick me for a jury. But consistently, when I do book talks and when I talk to, you know, I, I ask who sat on a jury. It's usually very few people and the and it's a very predictable demographic of people too, right? It's the people that can afford it, <laughs> you know. And if you look at the studies that have been done about who sits on juries now, it's almost exclusively upper middle class white people, Right. That are sitting on these juries don't th- these folks don't look a whole lot like your average defendant in most places by the way and some of these studies that are that are coming out i think there was a study that came out of texas that said you know in metropolitan areas only 20 percent of the people that are even called to jury duty show up in the first place hmm. so it's just a very small pool of people to choose from and it's the same folks that are in the, that end up same type of folks that end up on a jury over and over and over again nothing like a jury of our peers Um, And it's because so few trials happen that, you know, uh, lawyers can be selective, the court system can be selective, judges are pretty lax about who they are, you know, whose feet they're going to hold to the fire. So if you've got something to do, if you've got a doctor's appointment, or if you just can't afford to take $12 a day for jury uh, service, or if you have to, you know, water your hamsters and you just don't want to be there. Um, the judges are letting people out. So it's, it's the same group that shows up time and time and time again. And you have people that are on the inside of this whole criminal system and you have people, the vast majority of the public who is on the outside. The folks that are in on the inside basically tend back toward plea bargaining because it's easier. And here I'm talking about the lawyers and the judges. Um, and the people that are on the outside don't have to deal with it. So we don't think about it very much. And, and that has really caused incalculable damage, not just to our criminal justice system, but to our democracy.
0: You know, before I ask you this next question, I want to know, have you ever read the book Injustices, the Supreme Court History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting uh, the Afflicted by Ian Milhauser? Are you familiar no, with that but
1: no, but it does sound like my kind of book.
0: Okay, and that's exactly what it is. Just the history yeah. of the Supreme Court. Basically, the gist of the book is that there were a few times when the Supreme Court did the right thing—Brown versus Board of Education, Miranda rights—but by and large, since its inception, it has supported the moneyed and the powerful, and you know the the, the people in control. That—that's yeah. that's the gist of it.
1: We don't like to accept that kind of thing. As lawyers, I mean, I think that we don't like to to look at that in the face. And it's certainly not what we're taught in law school, right? We sort of have this romanticized notion that I think comes a lot from the Warren court for lawyers in my generation, right? right. you know, where it's it's like, okay, you can go in and you can win a court case and, and establish all this social justice for people. And, you know, this is how you do it. You do it from the top down and you convince a court that you're doing the right thing. And and it just has not been that way. It's not that way now. And it hasn't been that way for most of our history. And I think we do ourselves a disservice to think of these you know, American courts as being these beacons of truth and justice and all this other stuff. When, when for most of our history, they've been anything but. Yeah.
0: Just, so in that light that we're not to kill a mockingbird, talk about 1978 uh, Hayes versus the Borden culture. You can almost not make this stuff up, but tell us about that case.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. So uh, right down the road from me in Lexington, Kentucky is where this case originates. And this, you know, this is not a case. um, uh, The case is called, as you said, Borden-Kircher versus Hayes. It's not a case that that we teach very much in the law schools. Um, And it's not one that's well known, even among, you know, lawyers that have been out for a while. Uh, But I really think that it is a turning point in American history. Um, And what happens is, you know, Paul Hayes is this 29-year-old black horse transporter in Lexington. And he's standing in line at the grocery store. And, you know, his friend asks him to cash a check. Uh, long story short, he he cuts a bad check for eighty eight dollars and thirty cents and gets arrested right there on the spot at the grocery store. Cop puts a gun in his face, takes him downtown. So Paul had been in trouble about ten years before, some pretty serious trouble, but not for ten years since. And um, the prosecutor comes to him, and says, "It looks like you got a little bit of a criminal record here, Mr. Hayes. I tell you what, if you plead to and take five years." on this bad check worth $88 and 30 cents, do five years in prison. And uh, we'll just let bygones be got bygones. And, and Paul Hayes says, well, look, I don't really want to do five years. I've got a family and a job and all this other stuff. And so thank you, but no, thank you. I'll take my chances with the jury. So prosecutor's words, he says, if you put the court through the inconvenience of a trial, I'm going to hit you with higher charges. I'm going to hit you with what we call the habitual offender statute, right? which would now I think in most places be called a persistent felony offender statute. And you're going to do life because the mandatory sentence for that charge at that time in Kentucky was life in prison. And Paul Hayes is very brave and he says, well, no, you know what? I'm still going to go ahead and take my chances with the jury. I don't want to do five years and I really don't want to do life. So let's just see what happens. The jury convicts him. And the judge has no choice but to give him life in prison. Okay. This case goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. And I talked to Vince Apriel, who's a, a lawyer that practices here in Louisville, still still in practice. And he represented Paul um, at the Supreme Court. And he said, and it was interesting that you know, he said that that at the time that he took this case up to the Supreme Court, he got letters from prosecutors all over the country saying. You know, I, this is just outrageous Like to, to, to penalize somebody for wanting to go to trial. Like that is just, I would never do something like that. That is, that is, I mean, I just can't believe that a prosecutor would do that. I don't know if those prosecutors were telling the truth at that time or not. Um, but I do know that that is just the way that business is done now. And a lot of that is because of the way the Supreme Court decided Borden-Kircher versus Hayes. You know, the 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 Supreme Court looks at the case and says, well, it's the prosecutor's job. This is 1978. It's the prosecutor's job to um, to to discourage the defendant, to persuade the defendant to give up his right to a trial. And Mr. Hayes wasn't persuaded. And so he just rolled the dice and, you know, you, you, you take what you get. He gambled and lost. You know, sorry. Sorry about your luck, pal. Uh, And so he does, he gets, you know, this, this life in prison uh, sentence for a a check worth $88 is upheld. Um, And from that point forward, that really throws open the floodgates for prosecutors to use any means at their disposal, as I've mentioned before, to press somebody into taking, uh, taking a plea right? I, I, including the death penalty, but the, you know, hit them with higher charges or give them more time. Or if it's a case that you think stinks and you want it off your desk, give them less time, right? This is a murder case. Eh, I'm going to charge it as wanting endangerment. I'll give you six months probation and off you go. Cause I really don't want to try it, but you still get a conviction, right? And so over time, over the last 40 years, you know, we've, we've um, I mean, it was bad before then uh, but it's worse now and it's getting worse all the time, you know, and that's what has allowed throughout the drug wars uh, and subsequent decades. You know, and it's what's allowed our conviction rate to get so totally out of control and our raw number of incarcerated people to get so totally out of control. You don't get those kinds of numbers without a mechanism for cramming all those cases through the system very quickly. And that's what the plea bargain is
0: to me that's an amazing story that uh, we have this system jury of your peers you have a right to a trial if you're going to make me trial try you i'm going to absolutely screw you if you don't do what i if you don't if you don't stop the trial and do what i say and yeah that that's that's legal <laughs>
1: that's the trial penalty and that's where we differ from every other common law country right Countries like Canada that you mentioned before, or the UK, uh, India, Australia, right? Countries with a common law system that we got from the British. Um, None of them allow this kind of thing to the extent that the United States does. And that's what makes the big difference um, in terms of our numbers of plea bargain cases. And subsequently, our numbers of incarcerated people and our arrest rates and everything else.
0: We had uh, Roe versus Wade overturned and Clarence Thomas came out and said, well, you know, that's just the start. I don't know why we can't take on other things such as uh, right gay marriage. Um, I noticed he didn't mention interracial marriage, but uh, that's in the same same vein. Um, I know that you were kind of a big man in campus in Indiana in championing gay marriage. I don't know if that's the right term for it, but the, the right for people to marry who they want uh and you in indiana this is this is this is a conservative state ha, tell us about your work with that
1: yeah well i i was uh, the lead uh, counsel for the plaintiffs in kentucky um on a case called Obergefell versus okay. hodges yeah no I, i've done some of the work in indiana as well um <clears throat> but uh but the the case from kentucky is the one that went all the way up to the united states supreme court um and it's the the one that resulted in marriage equality in all fifty states, and it is the one that Justice Thomas has got right in his crosshairs, along with you know um, every red state uh, GOP uh, party that you can imagine. You know, like so, um, it's it's something that um, that that they've been sort of grumbling about since twenty fifteen when Obergefell came down. Um, and now it seems that they they it's possible that they have the political clout to actually undo the thing. You know, and you're talking about Roe. I mean, you know, when 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 Trump first took office, um, I, I had a lot of reporters reach out to me and say, hey, you know, you, you worked on this case and you did this thing. And don't, do you think that LGBT rights are in danger? And do you think that, the, you know, Trump's going to come into office and take marriages away? And I said, no, come on, you all. That's ridiculous. And I, I mean, I even wrote wrote op eds at the time that said, like, listen, don't worry about that. This is pretty safe. Right. There's other things that we have to worry about for sure. But, you know, you're not going to see the courts and you're not going to see this administration claw back people's constitutional rights because that's just not a thing that we've seen in American history. Well, time makes fools of us all. And. And what you've seen with Roe is really the opening salvo, I think, um, because it is the first time uh, that I know of that a court has, and certainly in modern history, that an American court has said, you know, no, this, this thing that we said was a constitutional right, an individual right before, is no longer one, right? Same amendment governing governing row that governs you know essentially that governs uh, same sex marriage and all these other wonderful things, right? So um, and and even right up until the Dobbs decision came down, I was not expecting this Supreme Court to issue some kind of explosive decision that says, "All right, these rights are now gone; they're up in smoke." But they've done it, and now what does that mean for everything else? Great question. Um, you know, I, and I don't think it means anything good. Um, I, I, you know, I still don't necessarily expect them. And and the, again, this may be just naivete, but I don't expect the court to issue an opinion that says all your marriages are null and void. Like this isn't gonna, you know, this is, this is no good anymore and you're no longer married. Now, Obergefell was a wrong decision. And, you know, uh, lots of luck. This is gonna be a state by state decision again. I don't necessarily expect that. Um, I mean, I suppose anything could happen. But I think what's a lot more likely is um, is the Kim Davis sort of situation. The, 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 if you guys remember that case, where um, and this is this was another one of my cases where you had this this Kentucky clerk right after the Obergefell decision, oh, you've got yeah, a Kentucky right. clerk that refuses to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples. And at the time, we were like, that's ridiculous. No court in America. Is going to say that because of your religion, you don't have to do what you're supposed to do as a public official, um, and and we were right, you know. So we won that case all every step of the way, all the way up, you know, to the Supreme Court, and and every judge that ever decided the case agreed with us, and but now the judiciary has changed so much over the last seven years because of Trump. Um, then I'm not super confident about that. And it would really just take one judge, right, uh, or one panel in one region of the country saying, okay, clerk, you don't have to recognize same sex marriages anymore because that's a tenet of your faith. Um, you know, oh, oh, okay, Governor Abbott, you don't have to recognize same sex marriages in your state because you just don't want to, right? Um, and if that happens, and that's essentially the way that, that, that abortion went away in Texas, if you'll remember on the SB8, which you guys probably covered on the podcast or talked about a little bit, you know there is this blatantly unconstitutional law that goes into effect in Texas. And the Fifth Circuit says, actually, well, that's an okay law. And the Supreme Court looks at it and says, you know, we're, not, we're just not going to do anything with that. We're just going to let that go into effect and see what happens. So they could do that with same-sex marriage, right? So if if a clerk says I'm not going to recognize it, uh, the lower courts say, know, yeah, okay. Well, let's just, you know, let's we'll, we'll we'll kick that down the line a little bit, and the Supreme Court just says nothing. Well, we're back to a pre-2015 situation without anybody, you know, without the Supreme Court saying anything, right? The Supreme Court could be totally silent on the matter, and you still have a situation where we're back to, you know, uh, it, it, it's region by region as to whether or not there's marriage equality
0: so it's it's scary times the democrats are thinking of bringing up a bill to codify the gay marriage bill like they should have done maybe with roe versus wade although that wouldn't make any difference i don't think um at least to try to get people on the the record but the court is so problematic i i don't i don't know if that's going to make any difference at all i you know when, when you if we have a civil war, it'll have as you describe it. It will not be people shooting other people. It will be parts of Idaho and parts of Oklahoma who just will refuse to comply with the laws of the United States. And that's how they'll start to break things apart. I don't know. That's my Well, and
1: I think it's pretty easy to imagine a scenario in which, you know, like you're not going to get any quarter from the Supreme Court. That's what they very clearly said, Right. So I think it's easy to imagine a scenario in which the, you know, the Respect for Marriage Act is invalidated by the Supreme Court. Like, oh, okay. Yeah, a federal government, you can't tell what, you can't tell all these states what to do with, with marriage. You can't tell them to recognize marriages that weren't performed there. You can't tell them to recognize same-sex marriage if they don't want to, either as a matter of religious freedom or as a matter of the Commerce Clause or whatever. You know, they'll come up with something. And, and so it's not hard to imagine the Supreme Court invalidating that act or anything good that Congress wants to pass for. this is what is so scary to me about where we are right now because of the judiciary. like you could elect an, an entirely democratic Congress. you could have a super majority, you know and that and they pass Medicare for all, you know um, and and the Supreme Court strikes it down the next day. <laughs> I mean you know that's 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 where we are. it's very, very difficult. We're we're in a very place. We're in a place that's very difficult for making progress. Let's put it that way.
0: Well, you're kind of a bummer, Dan. I'm sorry. I'm uh, you sorry. know, <laughs> that's
1: what my publisher says too, and my <laughs> wife. You, sorry. What,
0: what? I you know, what are you working on now? Um. Right now, I'm.
1: Um, uh, writing up a a, a chapter for a, a book that's coming out about um trump and incitement uh, i was on i was involved in a case called uh Guma versus trump so if you remember a few years back there was this viral video of uh trump doing this rally in louisville where he you know um told the 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 crowd to beat up protesters and that's I'll what they did
0: the, i'll pay for the that's yeah, that. yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that was my case. And so I'm writing a little bit about that and, you know, where we were then and where we are now, um, in terms of the, the the federal courts inaction and inability to do anything about, you know, election violence, because election violence is sort of a new thing for us in the United States, right? And it's not something that's very well understood um, worldwide, but certainly not here, because we just haven't, had that kind of thing. We haven't had to deal with it. So we're entering into this whole new era of, you know, where election violence is likely to be a regular fixture of American politics. And how do we go forward? And how do we deal with that? So, you know, there's some encouraging things there. and, and And I think that you know, to the extent that I don't want to be a total downer here. I mean, you know, if you look at the book, it ends on a hopeful note because my publisher made me end it on a hopeful hopeful note. But like, <laughs> Canon, this is too much doom and gloom. You got to do something here. But there are people that are really, you know, out there organizing and doing, you know, the yeoman's work of, of turning public opinion around on criminal justice issues and all kinds of other things, like really, really um, excellent organizers that are out there all over the country That really are making a difference. And I think that that you'll see more of this sort of grassroots um, activity uh, at a higher level and and by people who really know what they're doing in in the years and the decades to come, because I think, you know, we've sort of finally come around. Even lawyers have finally come around to realizing that change, real change is not going to happen from the top down. It's only going to come from the bottom up.
0: Howard Zinn. Yeah. 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 Great, great people. Great. It's the movements of people that make people great. Yes, indeed. Any, any, any thoughts, Greg?
2: Well, I think, you know, we suffer from a uh, lack of political leadership of, uh, you know, for every Dan Cannon, for every, um, person leading in the single payer movement, there's a hundred lawyers that don't give a shit, frankly. And, uh, that's the problem for me. I, I'm not buying the, the bottom-up thing it, uh, that's, that's anarchism and it's wishful thinking, it's utopian. We need leadership. We need people to step up and have a conscience and, and lead. And uh, you know, we're lucky to have the Dan Cannons, but we're unfortunate to have a host of people in the legal system that just don't give a damn. And without them getting involved, without the doctors getting involved in single payer and speaking up and leading on these things, we go nowhere, and, and on, a, on a political level, it's a disaster. So I'm not I'm not I'm not down because of Dan. I'm up because of Dan. I'm down because of the political leadership in this country or the lack thereof. It's appalling. It's just appalling that uh, we're where we are today. And you know, in the past, the Supreme Court uh, got the shit scared out of him by FDR, but it took a movement underneath that, an organized movement, an organized political leadership and guts on the part of politicians to to affect that. We don't have that. We don't have anything close to that. And so the people aren't at fault. 70% of the people in this country for single payer. I'm sure if they knew Dan's book, they'd be for ending this travesty in the criminal justice system, which he outlined so well, but there's no leadership.
0: Well, you're kind of a bummer too, Greg. So <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. It's um. Uh, it's it's a systemic problem. It's not just within law, it's within other areas of political leadership. And you know, we fall all over ourselves saying how wonderful the Democrats are for getting uh, Medicare the ability to uh, negotiate drug prices and boy we're we're really we're really doing the right thing. And you look at that bill and it's horrible. It's only a handful of drugs. there's a lot of restrictions, and we're patting ourselves on the
2: back for. It it doesn't get implemented until 2026 when there'll be a different administration. Correct. And the VA does it today. Right. This right. day, a government arm does it today.
0: But I mean, by lack of leadership, where's the leadership where someone would come and say, can't we just uh, nationalize the pharmaceutical industry and, and and do a little better job in delivering medical care? So I don't know. I, I, as someone, I, I have run for
1: United States Congress before, and I can tell you that the deck is the deck is stacked against, you know, regular folks who would be perfectly fine in leadership positions, um, but you know, like just just lack the resources to even run. I mean, you wouldn't even think about running if you didn't, you know, um, have the kind of resources that it takes to run in the United States, which that is to say, just a shit ton of money. And most of the folks that have access to those kinds of resources are, shall we say, out of touch with, with you know, a uh, 70 to 90% of the you know, working class population. So right. they don't really care whether they're in favor of Medicare for all or any of those things. But, I, you know, I'm curious, Greg, as to, you know, especially with your history in, uh, in, in, in um, you know, labor studies and everything else, like, with, this, with the universally terrible leadership that we have to offer here, how does that not push you into anarchism?
2: Well, no, I, I, I mean, I think we have to look at history and we have to look at where we have had changes and we have had changes in this country. But uh, what one exciting place to look is in the uh, union movement mm-hmm. where I think these youngsters that are coming in, independent of the old guard, independent of the old McCarthyite, leadership you know the people the dregs of the union movement that after they purged the left were left to lead these youngsters are bringing a different sensibility in. there's hope there there's a lot of hope there i agree unfortunately our generation and i'm not speaking for you because you're younger but uh pat my generation you know for all of our bombast in the 60s we didn't do a hell of a lot
1: yeah yeah. Well, uh, uh, hopefully yeah, it'll we be different this time that. around. Uh, you know, we, we, we've we got uh, in less, I was just talking about this earlier today, less than a year, you know, we went from zero Starbucks unions to 200. So that's pretty promising. Yeah. I don't know. You got to gotta, gotta turn over rocks looking for hope, but I'll take it wherever I can get it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> I agree.
0: Dan, you're just wonderful. This has been much better than I anticipated. It's great to get to know you a little bit your book is wonderful i will pass this on uh, to other people i try to keep books off my shelf and in hands of other friends so i'll do that yes. and i'd keep writing boy i you should uh, i i hope you become a writer uh, rather than just a lawyer and a teacher <laughs> instead, well, of, a <laughs> instead yeah. of a lawyer instead and <laughs> a lawyer and I, a teacher i am you definitely do, doing do more writing than baggage. lawyering have,
2: these days you have a lot Sorry. of baggage being a lawyer Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Good. So thanks, Dan. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks guys. Much appreciated.